The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open the word of God this morning, let's make sure that we are prepared for a study of God's word. We do that through a few moments of silent prayer, so if there's any need to confess sins, to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, and ready to study the word, we can. 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 66, 18 says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So on that basis, we always take time to make sure we are indeed ready for the study of God's word. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the privilege we have to gather together as a body of believers to study your word. Your word is absolute truth. And as we gather together, we submit ourselves to your word because the highest form of worship is for us to learn what you have to say to us, that we may be challenged, encouraged, and directed, that we may be given the content that we need upon which to base our thinking and our life. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and the Holy Spirit would make them clear how we should apply them in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Galatians 5, verse 16. And today we're going to wrap up the study that we have been in for the last... Almost four months. I looked at it this morning, and we have spent 16 weeks on this important passage. And I think that is it's crucial because this is a foundational paragraph for understanding everything in the spiritual life. So we have gone through a lot of different aspects of this passage and looking at different details, correlating it with other passages in Scripture. And so as we come to the conclusion of it, uh, this morning, I want to make sure we, we grasp it. We're not going to go back this way on some of these doctrines for a while, so I want to tie it all together. 
I think it's uh, important sometimes we get so caught up looking at the trees, we forget what the forest looks like. So we're not only going to take some time today to go back and just review the whole paragraph from 16 down through 25, but uh, we will do the same thing again in about three or four weeks. We will conclude Galatians, and at that time we'll go back and tie the whole epistle together in one class so we see how all the parts fit back together into the whole. Now, in this section, verse 16 starts off with the command, but I say, walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill, you will absolutely not be able to carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, we saw, when we looked at that verse, which sets up the topic for this paragraph, that it began with a present active imperative of peripateo. Peripateo looks like this in the Greek, P-E-R-I-P-A-T-E-O. And it is the standard word for walk. And it is used metaphorically here to describe the entire lifestyle of a person, our course of action, how we think, what we do, everything that we're involved in in our life. The present imperative, it's always important to parse our verbs. We're going to see something fascinating in the second hour in John. Sometimes people say, well, uh, Pastor, why do you spend so much time looking at the details of the Greek? And we're going to see an example of how, why Jesus did that and how he did it in the second hour in John. That every single detail, down to the minutest detail, in Scripture is inspired by God. Jesus said, no jot or tittle will pass away until all has been fulfilled. And that refers to the smallest letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Of course, at the time that Jesus said that, he was, uh, there was no New Testament. There was just the Old Testament. So even though he spoke of Greek letters, it had application to the Old Testament. Now, a present imperative expresses a command from the viewpoint of a standard operating procedure for the spiritual life. This is a general principle for guideline in the Christian life. This is something that we should make a habit, a characteristic, a, a standard procedure for living life. This is opposed to the aorist imperative, which always expresses the command in terms of making this a priority. So this emphasizes the action as the standard operating procedure in the spiritual life. Now, we have gone through this whole passage verse by verse and detail by detail until we concluded last week in verse 24. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, that is, the sin nature throughout this passage, the word flesh, which is the Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X, refers not simply to the physical material of our corporal composition, but it refers to that which inhabits and drives it, which is the sin nature, that propensity towards sin that is part of every human being since Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. In Adam, all die. It was in, because of Adam's sin that the sin nature uh, corrupted Adam's nature, and then was subsequently passed on genetically from generation to generation. So we all have a sin nature, and it was described in detail, or its works were described in detail in verses 19 through 21. 
Now, this sort of concluding statement in verse 24, Paul says, Those who belong to Christ, that is, every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have our diagram of the two circles. That at the point of salvation, every single believer enters into a relationship with the Lord, but there are two aspects of that relationship. The top circle represents the eternal dimension, and the bottom circle represents that day-to-day walk. At the cross, every person in life has to make a decision whether or not they are going to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, as a child is born, wherever they're born, in deepest, darkest Africa, South America, or in the ghetto of some large urban metropolis, everybody at some stage reaches God consciousness. And the stage of God consciousness, they have to make a decision as to whether or not they want to know more about God. And if they do, if they express positive volition to God consciousness, then God, because he is faithful and because of his integrity, will make sure that the gospel gets to that person. And every now and then there's some archaeological discovery that demonstrates that the gospel has the gospel made it a lot further and a lot faster than anybody ever anticipated. So if they're positive at God consciousness, then God gets the gospel to them, and they hear that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for their salvation, and they have the option of accepting Christ as Savior or not accepting Christ as Savior. At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, through, through an activity that is non-experiential called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and baptism signifies identification, the believer at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone is identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he is united with Christ in an eternal relationship that can never be severed. At the same time, we have a temporal relationship, a day-by-day walk with the Lord, and that's the subject of this passage. At the moment of salvation, God does 39 irrevocable things for us. That includes identifying us with with Christ. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ indwells us. The Father indwells us. We are sealed by means of the Holy Spirit. And a number of other things all occur at the moment of salvation. We're regenerated. We're given eternal life. Uh, The perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. We're justified. We're reconciled. We're redeemed. All of these things happen at the instant of salvation. And we are filled with the Spirit. But at some point, subsequent to salvation, we commit some word, thought, or deed that violates the absolute righteousness of God. And what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God judges. So even though we don't lose our salvation, we are our fellowship with God is broken. The Scripture uses two terms in Ephesians 4.30 and 1 Thessalonians 5.19 to describe this as grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. We then enter into a state of carnality. Now, carnality just comes from an old uh, English word from the King James Version, which meant that the sin nature comes from uh, the Greek word sarx or sarkanos in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, that the believer in in this status is under the control of the sin nature, which is exactly what we've seen in this whole passage, that there is a warfare going on. In the life of the believer. That's why the mandate is to walk by means of the Spirit, that is, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit so you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. There's only these two options. And then Paul went on to say, for the flesh sets its desire 
is antagonistic to the spirit, and the spirit is antagonistic to the sin nature. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So when you're out here in a status of carnality, even as a believer, you know what you ought to do, but you can't do it. That was Paul's experience in Romans chapter 7. He says, I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do the very things that I do not want to do. Even though he was trying to live the law, even though he was trying to live a moral life pleasing to God, because he was trying to do it in his own power, in his own energy, all of that, even though he was trying to live morality, he says he ended up doing what he didn't want to do, which was sin. So ultimately, you end up in a life of, uh, of sin here under the control of the Holy Spirit, and the only solution is to get back in fellowship with the Lord, and that's through 1 John 1.9. So the bottom circle describes that temporal relationship. But when we look at verse 24, Paul is talking about that permanent relationship that comes to everyone who accepts Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sin nature, that is the flesh, with its passions and desires. These are the lust patterns. These are the trends of everybody's sin nature. And we saw in our study of the sin nature, everybody has one, so nobody can look around and look down their nose at somebody else and say, why do you have a sin nature that's so bad. Well, yours is just as bad. It just may not be that you major in the gross licentious sins that somebody else majors in. You know, it always amazes me how we get together and we get with other believers, and there's some in the crowd that that, um, uh, their sins tend to run towards arrogance and mental attitude sins and gossip. And we never seem to, to nail those people. But the person that comes along who has trouble with sexual immorality or some other blatant, overt sin, we just want to crucify that person. How can they be saved? And immediately, what have we done? We've entered into judging. We've entered into arrogance. But nobody ever makes an issue about that. And yet you can end up in, and I've been in some congregations, that they're so caught up with legalism and trying to make everybody in the congregation fit into a certain box and fit a certain mold, dress a certain way, act a certain way, talk a certain way that's supposed to be the, the image of what a Christian's supposed to be like, that they've totally missed what the Christian life is all about. And everybody grows at different rates. I mean, you look at somebody over on this side of the congregation, and they may have a tremendous problem with certain sins that, in fact, as much as they grow to spiritual maturity, when they're 80 years old, they may still have a major battle in that particular area. And this person on this side of the congregation isn't even tempted in that area ever. And so it's easy for us to judge one another and not to realize that God matures all of us. God is the one who is working in us both to do and to will his good pleasure. It is God who is bringing the Word. It's the Holy Spirit who's convicting us. And it's the Lord who's bringing us to maturity. So we need to just learn to relax and not be so concerned about what's going on in somebody else's life and focus on what's going on in our own life and our own personal walk with the Lord. And that is going to be an important issue when we get into the beginning of the next chapter. The sin nature is motivated by an internal lust pattern. We have all types of lust patterns. Approbation lust, the desire for approval, power lust, sex lust, money lust, materialism lust, chemical lust. 
All of these things can drive a person. And then each person has different trends. You may have a trend towards antinomianism or licentiousness or lasciviousness. This is the idea that it really doesn't matter. Jesus died for my sins, so they're paid for, so I'm just going to just do whatever I want to do and enjoy all the pleasures I can enjoy and all the sin I can do. Because I, 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 God's going to forgive me, First John 1, 9. I'll just use First John 1, 9. That's what I'll do. I'll do this now, and then I'll confess afterwards. And we've all done that at some point in time. We've taken advantage of the grace of God. But, but see, grace is... I don't want to say that grace is intended to be taken advantage of and treated lightly, but that's the essence of grace. And we all do that. We all take... In fact, we do take advantage of the grace of God in order to have even eternal life because it's a free gift. We don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. God did everything through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But we should not treat grace lightly or trivially. Then there are those who have a trend towards asceticism or legalism. This is someone who thinks that they're going to impress God by how frequently they pray, by how much they go to church, by how active they are in the local church, by how much money they give, all kinds of different things people can uh, do, and usually they cover it over. The average legalist does not look at himself as a legalist. Neither does the licentious person, because what's that called? Self-deception. That's talked about in 1 John 1, 8. And we get into arrogance, and arrogance causes us to rationalize our sins, so we hold our head up high, stick our nose in the air, and say, I'm not legalistic at all. Pharisees were that way, and they just completely reacted to the whole concept of their legalism and self-righteousness when Jesus pointed it out. They, they couldn't see it. So, so our sin blinds us to the realities of our own life. Now, we produce sin, and from the sin nature, in two categories. The area of weakness is personal sins. Sins of the tongue, mental attitude sins, and overt sins. And then we also produce human good. This is a concept that so many people have trouble with and don't recognize, is that the sin nature can produce good things, morally good things in comparison to other people. Jesus never questioned the fact that in a human realm, the Pharisees were not moral or righteous at a human level. What he said was that if you're going to get into the kingdom of God, your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had a righteousness at a human level that exceeded anybody else on the earth. And what Jesus was pointing out was not their lack of righteousness. We tend to look at them through uh, the eyes of the New Testament and see their hypocrisy. But Jesus wasn't pointing out their hypocrisy as much as he was the fact that they had a great moral life, but spirituality and a relationship with God is beyond morality. That's one of the essential principles we learned in this passage in Galatians 5. And that is that morality is for believer and unbeliever alike. Paul is dealing in the overall context of Galatians with the fact that the Galatian believers, having been saved by faith alone in Christ alone and begun by, the, by means of the Spirit of God, in Galatians 3, 3, and 4, Paul says, "...having begun by the Spirit, are you now being matured by the flesh?" And you see, that's the trap many people fall into, is once they're saved, they start thinking that they can go through the process of spiritual growth simply by being involved in church. I've seen examples of this. You go to some churches, and I've been in some churches where the pastor is content-oriented and understands the principles of grace. 
and the church service will be short, quick, to the point, because the issue is learning God's Word. And I've been to other church services where it's like there's expected that there's just some dynamic. Just because we've got a bunch of believers together and we're having church, that that somehow the presence, the activity of church is maturing. And you end up reading every single announcement in the bulletin. You end up uh, having all these extraneous things. The kids come up into a program. You're there for two or three hours, and everything just kind of muddles along because it's somehow just the dynamic of being together, being at church, is supposed to be maturing. But you don't find that in, in, in the Scriptures at all. That's what I call churchianity. It's just the I was putting all the emphasis on just that being together as opposed to learning the Word of God. And that can all function from the sin nature. And what this passage is telling us is that the spiritual life is a supernatural life and demands a supernatural means of execution. That it is uniquely the product of God the Holy Spirit working in the life of the believer. So it is over and above morality. Morality, God created for the entire human race, believer and unbeliever alike, and it is for the stability and protection and perpetuation of the human race. Morality is something that an unbeliever can produce. So if an unbeliever can do it, it's not part of the spiritual life. The spiritual life must uniquely be the product of God the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul emphasizes here the two categories. You're either operating on the flesh or you're walking by means of the Spirit. If you're operating on the flesh, it will evidence certain characteristics in your life. These were listed in verses 19 through 21. But if you're walking by means of the Spirit, you're filled with the Spirit, you're learning the Word of God, you're learning doctrine, you're applying it in your life, then that eventually is going to produce a transformed character, which will then culminate in a transformed life. And the reason is because of what took place at salvation. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh because when we were born, according to Romans chapter 6, we are born slaves to sin. There's no option. No matter how good and wonderful a person might be, if they're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're enslaved to sin. At the moment of salvation, everything is applied to us in salvation. When we put faith alone in Christ alone, we're saved from the penalty of sin. We are justified. And we are positionally, that's the top circle, we are positionally sanctified. That word sanctified comes from the Greek word hagiosmos, which means to be set apart to God, set apart to a deity, to the service of God. We are positionally set apart, but it's not realized in that bottom circle in terms of actual until we learn the word of God. You see, you can't grow as a believer unless you're applying something. And you can't apply what you don't know. So you have to learn the Word of God, learn the principles of God's Word, put that into practice under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then we're making decisions to apply the Word of God and walk by means of the Spirit. And this is phase two of salvation, which is being saved from the power of sin. You see, the sin nature, we're enslaved until salvation, but at salvation, the sin nature, sin nature's power is broken. Now we have an option, we have an alternative. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we can choose not to obey the sin nature. So Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that the sin, we have been crucified with Christ, 
And the sin nature has been crucified, so it is dead. It no longer exercises that tyrannical power over us that it had prior to salvation. Now, that doesn't mean it's not there. It's still there in all of its glory. And we all are honest about that and realize that we sin just as much after salvation as we do before salvation. But as we grow and we learn the Word of God and we walk by means of the Spirit, then we are saved from the power of sin and we no longer have to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And then in phase three, salvation, which is glorification, we're saved from the presence of sin. It's not until then that we have a body, a resurrected body, that is absent a sin nature. Now, Paul concludes all of this in verse 25. And in the New American Standard Version, they want to put the paragraph break at verse 25. I think the paragraph break should come at verse 26 because the subject of verse 26 is tied to what comes in the first part of chapter 6, and the chapter break is at an unfortunate place, because these chapter and verses weren't added until the Middle Ages. The original text did not have chapter and verses, and that was just made on the basis of someone's understanding of the passage. But verse 26 really belongs to what comes after it in 6, 1 through 5. So we'll conclude... We start with verse 16 in this paragraph. I say, walk by the Spirit. And then you conclude with the passage that if we live by the Spirit. Now, live by the Spirit is in contrast to what Paul just says in verse 24, crucifying the flesh. So the flesh is dead. It is positionally dead. And because the flesh is positionally dead, we can live. We have eternal life. And we can live by means of the Spirit. So the first part of that phrase, that first class, is a first class condition in the Greek, which means if we live by the Spirit and we do. It has that positive sense. If and it is assumed to be true. That's the essence of a first class condition in the Greek. If we live by the Spirit and we do because we put our faith alone in Christ alone, let us also walk by means of the Spirit. So walking by means of the Spirit in verse 16 and walking by means of the Spirit at the end of verse 25 frame this entire section. But there's something that you don't see in your English text. And that is that the Greek word translated walk in verse 25 looks like this. Stoikeo. S-T-O-I-C-H-E-O. It is not peripateo. Peripateo is the word that we find back in verse 16. So Paul is going to use a synonym for walking here to bring out another aspect of the doctrine of walking. Stoikeo goes back to classical Greek where it was a military term which referred to military troops who'd be lining up in a row or a rank or lining up uh, in a battle line. Later, it was applied to anything that was in a line, that followed a direct line, that was uh, a group that marched in rank and file. And by New Testament times, it came to mean to follow a certain course of action, to follow a preset pattern, to stay in line, and it is used to refer to walking in a closely regulated life, living according to certain definite rules. So it is sometimes translated walking or following the footsteps of the, of the Spirit. It is, it is, the concept here is not just the day-by-day -day walking lifestyle 
that's emphasized in verse 16, but it moves it to the next stage, which is living by a, by a set of rules. And these are the mandates set up in the New Testament for the spiritual life. We are to walk by means of the Spirit. That walk follows a preset pattern. What is that path? Where do we find that path that we are to proceed down? What delimits the path? The path is set up by the Word of God, which has been revealed by the Spirit of God. So it is the Word of God that defines the course of action for the believer's life. So when Paul says, walk, stoikeo, by means of the Spirit, he is saying, walk according to the pattern that is revealed in the Scriptures. So that means that if we are going to walk by means of the Spirit, it is not some sort of mystical inner life, get in touch with what's going on inside of you and figure out uh, how God is directing you through some kind of subjective impression. The terms walking by means of the Spirit here exclude that completely. It's walking by an objective standard, an objective pattern, and that is the Word of God. So with that, we need to go back and review what the Scripture says in relation to the doctrine of walking. The doctrine of walking. Point number one, we need to realize that the Word of God uses four different words to talk about walking. We've talked about two of them already. Peripateo, which emphasizes that step-by-step forward motion and usually refers to our behavior, our conduct, our lifestyle, everything from what we think to um, what we do. The second word is stoikeo, and stoikeo emphasizes that following the pattern that is established in the Word of God. It is the pattern that establishes the course of our life, peripateo. The third word that is used is a word that is also used here in Galatians, orthopedeo, where we get our word orthopedics, orthopedeo, and that means to walk in a straight path. So again, that brings in the idea of walking along the path laid out by the Word of God. And then there's just a more general word, poruo, P-O-R-E-U-O, which just means to walk or to travel, to journey. It's a very general word used to describe the general life of of, uh, the believer. Point number two, after we get past our basic definitions, we have to understand the, the importance that this walking metaphor plays throughout the New Testament. And I think that, you know, one of the fundamental rules in interpreting Scripture and coming to understand Scripture is comparing Scripture with Scripture. And that is how we come to the truth. God did not reveal everything in one, at one time. God did not reveal to us uh, a systematic theology. The Bible is not a systematic theology. In fact, I see a lot of comparison between what a pastor does and what Adam did in the garden. When God placed Adam in the garden, he had established all of the created species on the earth. All the data was there. But it was up to Adam to categorize, classify, and name all of the animals. God did not give him a zoological textbook which identified all the genus and species. It was up to Adam to do that. 
in the same way God has revealed to us his will through many different kinds of literature. We have poetry, we have drama, we have a narrative, we have parables, you have a didactic literature uh, like the epistles. You have all kinds of different literature, and it is our job as believers to go in and look at the data and extrapolate from that and develop the principles of God's Word. You see it exemplified for us by the way the New Testament apostles went into the Old Testament and developed many things on the basis of what was said in the Old Testament. So the precedent is set for us. Just as the Lord established the precedent of naming in Genesis chapter 1, He called the light day and He called the darkness night. And he said it would be evening and morning. You see God calling the, the, the greater light the sun, the lesser light the moon. So God be initiated Adam's vocabulary and then said, okay, now you carry on the process. That's what you do in Christianity. And you look over the whole history of Christianity and you see that though even in the early church you can identify from their writings what they believed, they held to the Trinity, for example, in very naive terms. It wasn't for two or three hundred years before they worked it out and got it to a point where they could articulate it in clear, profound doctrinal statements, understanding all of the implications. But just because somebody says, I believe the Father, that there's God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they may not understand the Trinity, but they believe it. It took years for them to really understand all the passages and put it together. Same thing with the hypostatic union. Same thing with the atonement. Same thing with dispensations and the covenants and everything else. It's a progress through church history where the church has come to understand the depths of what the Scripture says. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't believe it beforehand, but they did. You can identify it. They just didn't understand it in a profound, deep, sophisticated way as it came to be understood through a greater course of action. So now, point two, we develop this doctrine of walking by looking and comparing passages. One of the things that we see is in the phraseology is that walk is used with the preposition in, E-N, plus the dative of sphere. So this describes the sphere in which we are to walk. The believer is to walk in the day, Romans 13, 13, or in the light, Ephesians 5, 8, and 1 John 1, 6, and not in the sphere of darkness, 1 John 1, 7. We are to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. We are to walk in love, Ephesians 5, 2, and 2 John 6. We are to walk in good works, Ephesians 2, 10. We are to walk in wisdom, Colossians 4, 5. We are to walk in truth, 2 John 4. In 3 John 3 and 4, and we are not to walk in the emptiness of our minds like the Gentiles, nor in craftiness. In other words, this describes the characteristics of the believer's lifestyle. It is fundamentally to be not in darkness. These are two categories that are set up as opposites. Not in darkness, but we are to walk in the light. Then you have another phrase that is used, and this is the same Greek preposition in, and here it is used with an instrumental, an instrumental dative, or dative of means, and we are to walk, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 7, not by sight, but by faith, by means of faith. So this tells us that the underlying operative mechanism here is going to be faith, which is trust in the Word of God. It is not just some blind faith in faith. 
but it is faith in the promises of God. Faith mixes our belief with the promises of God. We trust God. When the Word of God is more real to you than your experiences, your feelings, your emotions, your circumstances, that's when you're trusting God. Think of David facing Goliath. Think of Moses standing there trapped by the Egyptian army as he looks at the Red Sea and he has to decide whether or not he will trust God and touch the waters with his staff so the waters will separate or not. The Word of God was more real to him at that moment than the circumstances of just about being annihilated by the Egyptian army. So faith means the Word of God is more real to you than your circumstances, emotions, or feelings. So we're to walk by means of faith and by means of the Holy Spirit, and that's our passage, Galatians 5:16 through 25. So we see there is a tremendous connection here between trust in God's Word and the Holy Spirit. And then another phrase is used that is also important, and that is the phrase kata plus the accusative, which refers to, uh, that's K-A-T-A, and that refers to a norm or a standard. We're to walk according to the norm of the Spirit and not the norm of the flesh, Romans 8.4. We're to walk according to the norm or standard of love in Romans 14.15. In opposition to that, we are to not walk according to the norms or standards of the sin nature, Romans 8.4. We're not to walk according to the standard of men in 1 Corinthians 3.3. We're not... Uh, to walk according to the standard of, uh, of a disorderly, unruly, or licentious manner in 2 Thessalonians 3.6. We're not to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. 2. So all of this tells us that we are to walk, our, our lifestyle is to be in a certain sphere on the basis of or by means of the Holy Spirit in faith, and according to certain norms or standards that are laid out in the Word of God. The third point is that in Galatians 5.16, walking in the Spirit is contrasted with walking by means of the flesh. This tells us, as we've seen in our study on Wednesday night in Galatians 3, I mean James 3.13-18, through 18, that over and over the Bible portrays two spheres of operation. There's only two options. You're either living by means of the Spirit, you're living by means of the sin nature. You're either operating according to the standards of God and the power of God by faith in God, or you're operating on your own standard, your own power, your own efforts. You're either operating in the wisdom of the world or you're operating in the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the world is called earthly, natural, and demonic. The wisdom of God is perfect and good and truth. So it's one or the other. It's not a little bit of both. You're either operating in one arena or the other arena. Now, point number four is that the basis for the believer's walk is our position in Christ. It is because of all that Christ did for us and all that happens at the cross that the power of the sin nature is broken. It is dead. We are dead to the sin nature because of our identity with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 6.3, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been identified, that is, baptized, I think we use the word identified, we catch the sense of baptism better. Every time you use baptism, somebody immediately thinks of water, and water is only involved in, in three of the eight baptisms in Scripture. Do you not know that all of us who have been identified into Christ have been identified into His death? 
Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism, through identification, that is, into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And there we have an aorist active subjunctive indicating that the subjunctive mood always indicates potentiality that, and, and contingency that this is based upon the believer's volition. In other words, the believer may choose not to walk according to all that we have, and the believer, even though he never loses his salvation, may end up being an absolute failure in the spiritual life. Paul concludes by saying, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, because we know this, causal adverbial participle, that our old self was crucified with him for the purpose of our body of sin being done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's the purpose. That Christ died is not just so we can have eternal life and then live the rest of our life on earth like we please, but so that we can be in his family and putting to death the sin nature on a day-by-day basis, growing to spiritual maturity. So from this passage, we learn that the basis for walking, that is, the basis for living the Christian life, is our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which we call the doctrine of positional truth. This delivers us from slavery to sin so that we can live as slaves to righteousness. Point number five. Another key verse that is very important to understand in light of Galatians 5 is Ephesians 5, verse 8. That we are to walk as a child of light because we are already positionally children of light. We're already children of light. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were formerly darkness. That was our status in, as unbelievers. We were darkness. But now you are. It's a present active indicative. That is the mood of reality. Present tense is continuous action. We are light in the Lord. This describes us. And then you have a command. Walk as children of light. Now, let me suggest that it would be absurd for Paul to make a command, walk as children of light, if this was inevitably going to follow. There are some people who say that if you're a believer, it's just going to be inevitable that you're going to do good deeds. It's just going to happen. But if it's just going to happen, why would Paul say, why would Paul mandate it and say walk as children of light? Secondly, there are people who say that if you're a believer, you really will never be able to live like you did as an unbeliever. Well, if you could never live like you did as an unbeliever if you're a true believer, why would Paul even address this fact? It's because he was dealing with a congregation of people who hadn't had that much doctrine yet. He had taught them a lot when he was there, but they were still dealing with sin in their life, and there were members of that congregation who were still living just as they did before they were saved. And so Paul has to remind them of who they are in Christ and that they have to quit living like they were as an unbeliever and begin living in light of all that they have in Christ. Walk as children of light. And then he says in verse 9, and think of this. Think of verse 9 in light of what we just finished studying in Galatians 5.22. Galatians 5.22 and 23 says, But the fruit, that is the production of the Holy Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the production of the Holy Spirit in terms of certain character qualities. This is not overt as much as it's internal transformation. And look how Paul summarizes it in 5.9, Ephesians 5.9. 
for the fruit, that is the fruit of the light, that is the one who is contextually walking in the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, the word for goodness is the Greek agathosune, which has to do with intrinsic goodness, what we would call divine good, that which is produced by God the Holy Spirit as opposed to the moral good or human good or dead works produced by the sin nature. In all goodness and righteousness, dikaiosune, that's that important word for that righteousness that is consistent with the character of God. All goodness and righteousness and then truth, aletheia, that which is the word of God is said, Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, aletheia. So what we're talking about in 5.9 is underlying uh, virtues, that underlying integrity, that underlying uh, character that then produces the uh, aspects or characteristics or character transformations of Galatians 5. These are the intrinsic values, the goodness, the righteousness, and the truth, which is produced by fruit, by walking in the light. So you have to walk in the light. It doesn't say you have to be in the light. That is positional. That's salvation. It says you have to walk in the light before you're going to produce these things. It's a consequence of movement in the spiritual life. Often we get the idea that just if I just confess my sins, if I just get back in fellowship, that this is going to happen. No, getting back in fellowship just puts you back in a position where you can walk. It puts you back in bounds as opposed to being out of bounds. Now you can, now you're in bounds and you can walk, but you have to walk. You have to learn the Word of God consistently, daily. You have to put it into practice. You have to make that the highest priority in your life is to learn everything that God has for you, everything God has revealed in His Word, so that you can apply it in your life. And that's, that's when we're walking. That's when we're making that forward progress. And when we walk, then fruit is produced. Light represents the absolute perfection of God in contrast to darkness, which represents all that has been tainted by sin. In 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, we read, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him darkness at all. <coughs> this reminds us that the, what the, that the righteousness of God is his perfect standard. And the justice of God is the application or execution of that standard. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. So when the righteousness of God demands absolute perfection, the justice of God must execute that. So when we fall short of the righteousness of God, what the righteousness of God rejects us, and therefore the justice of God must judge us. That's why Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines every son whom he receives, because we do commit acts that hinder or hurt or in some way affect our relationship with God. They don't destroy it as believers. We never lose our salvation. But there is a hindrance to that relationship. And God has to deal with that through discipline. And we have to ask the question, how much sin violates the character of God? Any amount of sin. 
even if it's something small like eating a piece of fruit. I just think it's fascinating that the entire problem of man is a result of eating a piece of fruit because we tend to think of sin in these stark, horrible things and yet God defines sin as an act of disobedience. So it can involve anything if it's disobedience to the revealed will of God. Now, we become sons of light at the moment of salvation so that our basic character is described as sons of light. John 12:36, Jesus says, While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. So at the moment of salvation, we become sons of light and we are transferred positionally into the light. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Acts 26.18 To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that, he may, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Colossians 1.13, for he delivered us from the domain, that is, exousia, the authority, the power of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We're born in darkness, and at salvation we are positionally, we become sons of light, and we are placed positionally in light. Yet we can still perform the deeds of darkness, which is recognized in Romans 13.12, where Paul says, The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness. That would be a meaningless command if we could not continue to commit all the deeds of darkness. But Paul says we must lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So there's this clear distinction between positionally being in the light and and being sons of light and the experience of walking in the light and putting on the armor of light. In fact, the word there for laying aside the deeds of darkness is a word that is used for stripping off clothing. And Paul uses this word in Ephesians 4:22 and in 25 where he says, "In reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Therefore, having laid aside falsehood, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So we're to strip off this old man, this old activity that is consistent with being an unbeliever. And that is a prerequisite, really, in two passages for going forward. So it's in relationship to confession and cleansing so that we can go forward in the spiritual life. So what we see here is that light... Walking in the light is comparable to being filled with the Spirit and walking by the Spirit or walking in darkness, which is carnality. These are absolutes. You're either one or the other. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, What fellowship has light with darkness? So it emphasizes the point that, it, you can't, that the spiritual life is not just living life, thinking, well, I'm trying to apply the Word of God and do what the Word of God says, but it's a recognition that it's in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we lose that when we sin, so we have to have a dynamic for getting back in fellowship, and that's what we see in 1 John 1. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light, maybe we do and maybe we don't, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, that's a very general principle. 
And it is related to the fact that at salvation, all of our sins are paid for, and so sin is never going to be an issue in the believer's life in terms of his eternal relationship. The blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. So that is, let's go back and look at one of our other diagrams here. That is related, verse 7, is related to salvation from, from the penalty of sin and provides the basis for all other forgiveness. But then we do continue to commit sins. In 1 John 1, 8, we say, read, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. A recognition that as believers, we're still going to commit sin. Now, some people think that 1 John 1, 7 is the real issue here. That as long as I commit sin here, the blood of Jesus is going to cleanse me from sin. So I don't have to do anything. I can just live and it will automatically happen. But if it automatically happened, why does John give us verse 9? Why, if we're automatically cleansed because we're saved, from, if we're automatically cleansed from post-salvation sins, why, do we need, why would he even give us 1 John 1, 9? Because 1 John 1, 9 is the application of the cross to post-salvation sins. Just as we have salvation, the word saved used, of three different phases of salvation. Forgiveness is used in, in different senses. One applies to what we have at, at the cross, and the other applies to this forgiveness that is applied when we confess our sins in phase two. If we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins in privacy to God the Father, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just the sins we mentioned, because they're sins we're ignorant of, sins that we've forgotten about, but when we confess those sins that we know about, then God the Father cleanses us from all unrighteousness, separates our sins as far as the east is from the west, and He promises that He will never again remember them. So they're not an issue. So we don't have to feel guilty. We don't have to impress God with how sorry we are. I always laugh at that because God's omniscient. He knows all the noble, and he knows that you're going to commit that same sin five more times today, ten times tomorrow, and each time you commit it, you're just going to be overwhelmed with guilt and try to impress him with how sorry you are. And we can't pull the wool over God's eyes, and he knows what's going to happen. So the issue really isn't how we feel about it. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong, and many times we're going to feel uh, very, may, may feel overwhelmed with guilt. That's not wrong. But that's not the determinative factor in confession. The determinative factor is obeying what God says, which is to admit or acknowledge your sins to God and then move on. And do not feel guilty about it ever again because God has already forgiven you. It's no longer an issue. The time is to go forward. Think about it in terms of an athlete. If an athlete messes up out on the field and continues to think about that mistake for the rest of the game, they're, they're just going to make mistake after mistake after mistake. And that's what happens with most believers, is they get caught up in some sin, and they feel guilty about it, and they feel guilty about it, and they're just, they're just trapped by past failure. And the Scripture says that when you confess it to God, you're forgiven, you can move forward. Don't look back, but move forward. doesn't mean that this justifies you in doing it again. You may, you may not. But you're not supposed to. You're supposed to move forward. But we're never going to be free of sin in this life. So 1 John 1, 9 tells us that, that in terms of walking in the light, a vital factor is to confess 
our sins. And this is what connects us back to Ephesians 5, where it says that we're not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but expose them. And then it goes on to tell us the mandate that this is through the filling of God the Holy Spirit. So in summary then, we need to realize from these passages in 1 John and Ephesians 5 that walking in the light refers to the Christian living his life in fellowship with God. If walking in the light refers to the Christian living his light in fellowship with God, then walking by means of the Spirit expresses the dynamic that underlies that life of fellowship. So that connects, right there, that connects walking in the light and walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Point number two. Just as the darkness is incompatible with light, so sin patterns, whether they're overt, mental, or verbal, sin patterns are incompatible with fellowship with God. So anytime we commit a sin, it's incompatible with the fellowship of God, so we're in, in darkness and not in light. Point number three, when we sin, we quit walking in the light and we begin to walk in darkness. Point number four, walking in darkness is an absolute that is compared to other absolutes in the, chapter, in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Paul compares absolutes, darkness versus light, foolishness versus wise, drunk versus being filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can say that, point number five, the command to be filled with the Spirit is analogous to the mandate to walk by means of the Spirit. So we see the relationship. We walk by means of the Spirit, and that's analogous to Paul's terminology in Ephesians 5 of being filled by means of the Spirit. Being filled by means of the Spirit is the underlying dynamic. Walking by means of the Spirit is that moment-by-moment progress of advancing in the spiritual life. Point number six. The continuous light metaphor in Ephesians 5 and 1 John 1, by that I mean it's an extended metaphor that goes through the whole chapter, shows that there is a connection between fellowship with God and the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is that analogy that both 1 John 1 and Ephesians 5 have in common, and that's how you can link confession to the filling of the Holy Spirit. The reason I say that is about twice a year, I get asked, how can you connect 1 John 1, 9, which doesn't mention the filling of the Holy Spirit, with Ephesians 5, which, doesn't, which mentions the filling of the Holy Spirit, but doesn't mention confession? How do you connect them? Well, that connecting bridge is that they both fit into this same analogy of light versus darkness. And that's where you, you that's, that's that work of classification and categorization, where you compare things, and because this is true as your major premise, and that's true as your minor premise, you can then draw certain inferential conclusions that because both premises are true, the conclusion must necessarily be true. So it is the light metaphor that links Ephesians 5 and 1 John 1 together. And then in conclusion, recovery from the darkness, from walking in darkness, is through the use of 1 John 1, 9. But the emphasis on walking is on continuous residence in the light. Okay, now back to our main points. Main point, we had just gone over point five, which was the relationship of walking in the light and walking in darkness. And verse six, we, on point six, the precedence for walking in the light is found in 1 John 2, 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 
The precedence is Jesus Christ. We are to walk as Christ walked. How did Christ walk? By means of the filling of the Holy Spirit. He pioneered that. There was no filling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the first to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we see in the whole timeline of human history is that in the Old Testament, where there is man is living without the aid of God the Holy Spirit, the precepts, the emphasis is on morality and ritual. And the result is human failure. So at the cross, God is going to provide an own dynamic showing that man can live up to God's standards only when God provides the complete grace solution which includes the dynamic to live the life that pleases God. Point seven. The Christian walk is based on faith. When the Word of God is more real to you than any experience, any thought, any suffering. Second Corinthians 5, 7 compared to Colossians 2, 6. We are, as we received Him, we are to walk by Him. Galatians 3, 3 and 4. We begin by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit. Point number eight, the sphere of walking is also by means of doctrine. So we see that there are two power sources in the spiritual life that work together. One is by means of the Holy Spirit, and the other is the Word of God. You don't separate them. The Holy Spirit teaches us the Word of God and illuminates the Word of God. And we walk, we live our life conscientiously in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And it is the two working together that produces the Christian life. It's not one or the other. If you emphasize the Holy Spirit, you end up in some kind of experiential subjective mysticism. If you emphasize the Word of God, you always end up in some kind of rationalistic legalism. It is the two together. And then finally, walking leads to living in the sphere of love. Living in the sphere of love. Love is a mature product of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. It doesn't just happen. It begins when we're first saved and begin to grow. But it is not matured until we have spent some time learning the Word of God and walking by means of the Spirit of God. So this is the thrust of Galatians 5, 16 through 25. It lays out all the dynamics of the spiritual life, the warfare that goes on inside of us between the Holy Spirit and the sin nature and gives us criteria to evaluate our own lives before the Lord to determine whether or not we are walking by means of the Spirit. If so, then the fruit of the Spirit should be manifest. If not, then the works of the flesh would be manifest, and then we have to make the necessary corrections. So that concludes our study of Galatians 5, and we'll start off with 526, which in reality should be the beginning of chapter 6 next time. And in about, it will take us about three weeks to finish Galatians 6, I think. And then we're going to embark on a totally new study. We're going to go into the Old Testament and begin an overview of the Old Testament, which will be unlike any you've ever been through before. I can say that rather confidently. And uh, we're going to use, take about three months to overview the Old Testament so that we can have some understanding and appreciation of that for a study of the book of Judges. And that will be uh, very interesting. The theme of the book of Judges is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I can't think, I can't think of a book in the Bible that is more applicable to today 
than that particular book. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity we've had to study your word. We thank you that you have given us everything we need for the spiritual life. You've given us everything we need for salvation. Your grace is above and beyond anything we can think of or imagine. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that certain. All they need to do is utter a silent prayer. Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my salvation. It doesn't involve moral reformation. It doesn't involve commitment. It doesn't involve church attendance. It doesn't involve anything other than simple faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning and the past several weeks. and pray that you would help us to understand the vitality of this relationship with the Holy Spirit who is the inner dynamic of our life. And this is a unique life for the church age. And we're uniquely privileged to have the Holy Spirit filling us and is a source of our power for the spiritual life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.